Half to number three is where we're going to be at this morning. If you're there, say amen. amen. And I am very excited to be able to continue this series in Jonah today. What a, a journey we've been on studying through the book of Jonah. And really the book of Jonah is all about a reluctant man who encountered a relentless, a relentless God. And as we'll see today, it resulted in a revived nation. And uh, this is really the mountaintop of the book of Jonah. And what a precious passage of scripture we have here in Jonah uh, chapter number three today. Now for those of you that are maybe joining us for the first time in this series, I want to catch you up to speed real quick before we read the verses that we're going to look at here today. On this journey through Jonah, we've already witnessed how God called a prophet, Jonah, to get up from where he lived in Israel and go preach a message to the people who weren't from his nation, the people of Assyria who lived in the capital city of Nineveh. God told Jonah to go preach a message to them, but when he gave this call to Jonah, Jonah didn't want to do it. So what did he do? He ran. He ran from God. He ran from God's call. And as we've seen through this study, I'm thankful that when Jonah ran, God didn't give up on him. God ran after Jonah. God chased that man down to the bottom of the sea and into the belly of a whale. He would not let him get away. And eventually, God got a hold of Jonah's heart, and Jonah repented, and he relented, and he returned to the Lord. And so God told that fish that swallowed him up in the sea to spit him out. And the Bible says that he was spit out on the Galilean shore, and he made, started to make his way towards the city of Nineveh. When he got there, we're going to discover today what took place. And so we'll take up our reading in Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 3. And uh, let's uh, join together in reading a couple verses here. The Bible says in Jonah 3 and verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What happened? Verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. What took place here was the single greatest recorded spiritual revolution that has ever taken place in the history of humanity. We're talking about 120,000 people in a city, at least that many. Many believe it was many, many more than that. But at least 120,000 people heard a five-word message, and after that message, they repented and turned to God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're talking about something unprecedented in the ends of history. Something that had not happened like since before and has not happened since uh, the time that it took place in Jonah's day. God used a washed up preacher, literally, to preach the word to a wicked people. And it brought about a widespread penitence. These people were brought to their knees. What happened here was a spiritual revolution. Now, how could a spiritual revolution of this magnitude take place? And can a spiritual revolution like this still take place today? If we're being honest this morning, the sad truth is this generation is in just 
as much need, if, if even not more so, of a spiritual revolution than Nineveh was in Jonah's day. The things that we see taking place in our day and time, sometimes you have to look at society and wonder, is there any hope? Is it possible for God to still do today what He did then? Can God still work in the hearts of people? My Bible says in Mark chapter 10, verse 27, with men it is impossible, but not with God. But with God, all things are possible. I'm telling you, you go to Mark 10, Jesus spoke that in the context of bringing about spiritual revolution, of bringing about the salvation of souls. We can't do it, but God still can. And God still will if, we're, if we are willing to get on board with what His process is. And as we look at the story of what happens here in the book of Jonah, I believe God shows us what's required for a spiritual revolution to take place. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love for a spiritual revolution, a great awakening to sweep across this country today? I want to tell you something. It will never happen until you allow a spiritual revolution to take place in your heart. God's burdened me about this message today. I want us to open our hearts to the Lord today. You want a country to be reached. God just wants your heart. That's what it starts with. Don't worry about America until you give God your own heart. Whether you're saved or lost here today, I'm talking to you. God wants your heart. Revival will never come to this country. The spiritual revolution will never happen in this country until you let it happen in your heart. Would you be open to that today? Let's pray together and ask God to speak to our hearts today. And we'll jump in to these requirements for a spiritual revolution in the Scripture. Our Father, we come before you and thank you for this opportunity to be able to take your word and preach it. And Lord, I am stirred up about this passage of Scripture. I'm excited to be able to convey this truth. And Lord, you know how much you've given me in study today. And I know that there's no way I could express it all. And so, Lord, you're going to have to just give me the words that you want said. And there's so much more here than what can be talked about in, a, uh, in, a, in this hour, Lord. Um, but I know that you have something specific you want to do today. And, Lord, I'm confident, Lord, that you are still a God, the same God who worked in Nineveh. You can work today. I believe that, Lord. And I pray that you'd start a spiritual revolution in the hearts of these people that are gathered in this room today. May we be open to let you work, Lord. And I pray you, that the truth of your word will result in salvation of souls today and the reformation of Christians, turning their hearts truly and sincerely and wholly to you, Lord, from their sin to you and to your purpose for their lives. And I pray you'd do something that can only be explained that it was God who did it. And I pray you'd do that today in this hour. In these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. I want you to notice with me four requirements of a spiritual revolution this morning. First off, if you're taking notes, what is first required for a spiritual revolution is a great need. There must be a great need. Now the Bible here in Jonah chapter 3 clearly communicates, and really all throughout the book of Jonah, the Bible clearly communicates the, the greatness of the need that was present in the city of Nineveh, among the people of Nineveh. 
uh, four different times in, in the Bible. Uh, in, in the book of Jonah, we find the Bible refers to Nineveh as a great city. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 2, the Bible says, or God speaking to Jonah, he said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that what? Great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, chapter number 3, and verse number 2, again God said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that what? great city and preach into it the preaching that I bid thee. Verse number three, the end of the verse. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey. You jump down to chapter number four and verse number 11, the last verse of the book. The Lord said, and shall not I spare Nineveh that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. This was a great city. The Bible makes that very clear to us. But let's think about what was it that made Nineveh such a great city. The first thing I want you to see is that it was great in size. In other words, it was a big city. It was a magnificent city. Um, it was a huge city. The Bible indicates here in chapter 3 and verse number th- uh, 3 the magnitude of the size of this city. You look at verse 3 with me. The Bible says, So Jonah arose and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, and note this, of three days journey. What does it mean, three days journey? Where Wearsby noted in his commentary that three days journey means either it would take three days to get through the city and all of its suburbs, or it means it would take three days to go around the circumference of the city. Now, biblically, if you study your Bible, we know that the city of Nineveh was established under the reign of Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10 by a man named Asher, who eventually from him came the Assyrian nation. And so that's when Nineveh was established. And when you read back in Genesis chapter 10, there in Nineveh, there were three suburbs that were established around the city of Nineveh. Let's put that map up there if we could. Um, We have the great city of Nineveh. We have Nineveh proper over on the left. And then we have Rehoboth-ir, Rezin, and Kala. All of these were established as a metroplex that formed the greater city of Nineveh as we understand it from the biblical account. Now, what's interesting is Nineveh proper was not that big of a city, just Nineveh proper. But with all of its suburbs, it was a massive piece of land. It stretched a a, a distance of 50 miles um, in circumference. And really, um, it would take someone at least three days of walking to just get around to the different suburbs and the different cities that were present in uh, uh, in the the, the metroplex of of Nineveh. And uh, so it was a massive city. Now today we know that the the biblical um, place, Nineveh, is in Iraq um, uh, near uh, modern-day Mosul. And I think we have a map of that as well. Uh, where Nineveh is at. There's Mosul. It's just a little bit to the north. We know that Nineveh is there because the ruins of the city are still there. And if you go to the ruins of that city, um, the walls of this city spanned a distance of, of seven and a half miles in circumference. We have a, a picture of the, um, uh, a map of the uh, walls of the city. Let's put that up there, guys. And I kind of distorted a little bit here, but uh, it's interesting, um, down on the uh, bottom portion, right there where that dot is, there's a mound in, the, in, this, in these ruins of the city of Nineveh uh, that's, that's called uh, Nabi Yunus. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but I know what it means. It, it means the mound of Jonah. And still, to this day, there's, uh, there's a mound that the Assyrians built as a testament to the fact 
that Jonah had been in that city. I'm telling you this because this is not a fairy tale. Listen, archaeological evidence proves, uh, not that we need it, but it does prove and confirm that what the Bible tells us is true. And skeptics like to try to criticize the Word of God, but I'm glad we can trust the validity of the power of the Word of God. And so Nineveh, this was the city of Nineveh. Now these walls that surrounded Nineveh, I think we have a picture of some of the ruins that have been a little bit recreated of the walls of Nineveh. In its heyday, the walls of Nineveh, one historian wrote, were 100 feet high and so thick that three chariots could go abreast on top of them riding around the city. This was a massive city. And so the Bible tells us it was a city that was great in size. But not only was it great in size, but it was also great in standing. Write that down next. It was great in standing. Historically, we understand that Nineveh was at one point the world superpower. It was the greatest nation that existed in the world at one point in history. Now in Jonah's day, this is is very interesting from my study. I found this out. The nation of Assyria was in the middle of what one historian called 40 lean years, during which the Assyrian Empire, and I quote, almost passed out of of existence. This took place between the reign of um, Adad-Nerari and Tiglath-Pistler III, two different kings of the Assyrian nation. And during this dead time, the, the nation of Assyria almost went belly up. It almost went under. And this is interesting to me because literally you think about this. God brought this nation to its knees so it would be open to the message that God was sending Jonah to preach to it. And so it was a city that was great in size. It was a city that was great in standing. But I want you to see third here is it was a city that was great in sin. This was a problem. God first spoke about the city of Nineveh in chapter 1 and verse 2. God referred to it as a great city whose wickedness had come up before him. Nineveh, you make no mistake about it, was a wicked, wicked city. Later, the prophet Nahum told us more about the wickedness of the city of uh, of Nineveh. Nineveh was noted as being a city full of murder, thievery, immorality, slavery, and even witchcraft. And I tell you, God in the book of Jonah later reveals to us why it was such a wicked city. I want you to see this with me. Chapter 4 and verse 11, we read it a moment ago. But it says in chapter 4 and verse 11, God speaking, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. What he's, what he's referring there is a figure of speech. It wasn't that they couldn't, didn't know the right from their left. What it was is they didn't understand right from wrong. There was no biblical morality. There was no moral standard in the land. And no wonder there was so much wickedness. No wonder there was so much debauchery that was taking place in the city of Nineveh. There was no truth. And truth was fall- if truth has fallen in the street, then the people can go into all types of wickedness. By the way, we're seeing that happen in our day and time in America here today. Truth is falling in the street. Our young people aren't being raised up and being taught what right and wrong is. In fact, we're distorting what right is wrong is. We're calling things that are wrong right, and we're calling things that are right wrong. Is it any surprise we see some of the things taking place in America that we are seeing take place today? Nineveh was a city that was great in sin. A very wicked city that was overdue for divine judgment. We also see the Bible indicates that Nineveh was a city great in significance. You see, the indication of the Hebrew text 
When God refers to Nineveh as a great city, what he's talking about, literally, is that it was great in importance to him. That's what God meant when he called Nineveh a great city. He didn't call it a great city because of its sin. He didn't call it a great city because of its size. He didn't call it a great city because of its standing. He called it a great city because the people that lived in that nation, the people that lived in that city, they mattered to God. They didn't matter to Israel. They didn't matter to even Jonah. Jonah didn't even want to go preach to them. He was mad when they all got saved. But they mattered to God, the Bible indicates to us. And though they weren't His chosen people, the Jews, they were still important to God. He cared for them and He desired every single one of them to be saved. And let me just stop here to say this, and you make no mistake about this. All lives matter to God. All of them. And I'm not saying that as a political statement. I'm saying that because that's the Bible truth right there. Listen to me. The Bible does not indicate to us that God only cares about a chosen few, a certain group of people. The Bible says He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's the Savior of all men, and especially of those that believe. That's who our God is. And you make no mistake about it, there's not a person in this world that God doesn't care about and that God doesn't want to be saved. The Bible makes that very clear to us. And so before the spiritual revolution ever took place, we see there was a great need that needed to be dealt with. And friend, as I look at our country today, I cannot deny there is a great need. America is great in size. The fourth greatest landmass of countries in the world and the third greatest in population of countries in the world. America is great in standing. For all of our failures, we're still, I believe, the greatest nation on the face of the earth today to live in. And I'm thankful for my country. In spite, in spite of all of our failures, sadly, America is great in sin. As much as we're a leader in so many other ways in this world, we are primarily a leader of forcing sin into the culture of this world. We're the leader in, por in the pornography industry. Hollywood has devastated so many cultures that are in this world today. We're leaders in idolatry, the worship of sports and worship of all these different types of things. We're, we're a leader in, in the drug industry. And I could go on and on and on and talk about the sin of America here today. But we're a nation that is great in sin. But can I say we are still a nation great in significance to God? Just as much as God cares about every nation, God still would love to bring a spiritual revolution to our shores here today. As I said before, this great need is not just for America. This great need is in your heart today. And I hope you understand that. Because before God can work on a massive scale, He's got to be able to work on an individual scale. In your own heart, and your own life. And so we see what is required for a spiritual revolution is a great need. But number two, what is required for a spiritual revolution is a grim message. A grim message. If we look back to the scriptures here. We find that when Jonah arrived at the great city of Nineveh, God gave him a grim message to preach to the people. Look at verse 4 with me again. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The indication of the text here is that Jonah, as he traversed 
He came to the city and he began to enter into the city and began to walk and see the need that was present in the city. And like a herald from heaven, from the king of heaven, he began to proclaim 40 days and everyone is going to die. Now friend, that's not a feel-good message if I've ever heard one, okay? The message that God gave to Jonah to preach to the people of Nineveh was a grim message indeed. But I'll say this, such a grim message was necessary to truly communicate the beauty of the good news. You know, the good news of the gospel is not near as good until we understand the bad news. In other words, you can't understand why you need to be saved until you understand that you are going to die and perish without Jesus Christ. The bad news makes the good news a whole lot um, better. I was going to say gooder. <laughs> but I, you, you English uh, fanatics would have corrected me for that, so I stayed away from that. But he didn't have a good message to share. He had a grim message to share, an intimidating message. And I want us to see a few things about this message. The first thing I, we see from the scripture here as we consider this grim message is that it was an impending message. It was an impending message. No question was left as to how long it would be before God's judgment fell. How many days did he say? Forty days. And friend, the time was already ticking. As soon as, he's, as soon as Jonah opened his mouth, the time was already ticking. Matthew Henry wrote, 40 days is a long time for a righteous God to defer His judgment. Yet it is but a little time for an unrighteous people to repent and reform and so turn away the coming judgment of God. I asked uh, for this thing the other day, an hourglass. It's a little reminder of what we're talking about here. Now I'm going to put it down here so I don't knock it off and break it because it's not mine. Right? The time was already ticking. Now, if you're wondering, that's supposed to be 30 minutes right there, and so now I have to finish my sermon before it runs out. <laughs> Don't you just hate that? We have 30 minutes left anyway, so there you go. My friend, as I look at that thing and I think about what's happening here, you know God has left no question as to, when he is going, as, as to if He is going to bring judgment upon the sin of this world. It's coming soon. And it's coming sooner than you might think. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but He's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. You listen to God's word this morning. The day of the Lord's judgment will most certainly come. You will not escape it. God is coming to right the wrongs that are in this world. God is coming for judgment. He came the first time for salvation. He's coming a second time for judgment upon this earth. You make no mistake about it. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it's coming. 
None of us will escape it. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible says. The day of judgment is most certainly coming. You can act like you have time, but very soon it'll be too late. Let me tell you something. The rich man in Luke chapter 16 probably thought he still had time until he woke up in hell one day and there was no more time. No more time to deal with his sin. No more time to turn to God for mercy from the judgment that he deserved for his sinful ways. This is why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, but you do have right now. And right now is the time for you to do something with the, with the fact of your sin and the, and the knowledge of God's coming judgment upon your sin. It is an impending message that we hear from the scripture here today. But not only this, it is an intimidating message. It is an intimidating message. And remember, Jonah preached to these people, and these were the words that he essentially used. God is going to overthrow you. God is going to destroy you. This was not the message that they wanted to hear. You listen to me. It was the message they needed to hear wasn't the message they wanted it was the message they needed and I say this to you this morning the message of the gospel today is no less intimidating for us when we look at the bad news of the gospel again the bad news is what makes the good news so good listen the bad news is, a, is, an, is an intimidating message indeed for us here today as well Jesus said in Luke I tell you nay but except you repent you shall all likewise perish you think you're going to escape? You think you're going to circumvent the judgment of God? We're all under the judgment of God. Unless you trust in Jesus Christ to save your sinful, sinful soul, there is no hope for you escaping the judgment that you deserve for your sin. It is an intimidating message. A society today condemns what they call hellfire and brimstone preaching. Can I tell you something? God condones it. I'm not talking about being a bully. I'm not talking about being mean, but I am saying Jesus Christ himself talked about hell twice as much as he talked about heaven in the New Testament. And it's an intimidating message because hell's a real place that real people are dying and going to every day. And somebody needs to warn people about the coming judgment of God because there is someone that can save your soul today. He died on a cross for your sin to rescue you from what you deserve for your sinful choices. And you need to know that Jesus Christ can save your soul today. You never know why you need His salvation unless you understand you're standing in judgment before a holy God. And without Jesus Christ, you will suffer in hell for all of eternity. You say, Pete, preacher, I don't like that kind of preaching. It doesn't make me feel very good. Can I say in all sincerity, hell won't feel very good either. And I'm not kidding with you. Friend, I'd much rather you be upset with me on this earth for telling you a message that made you feel uncomfortable than seeing you die and suffer in hell for all of eternity. I don't like preaching messages like this. I don't like making people feel uncomfortable. But friend, it's my duty to take the word of God and warn you. God loves you too much to let you die and suffer for your sin. He already died for you so that you could be saved. This message is an impending message. It's coming. Judgment's coming. It's an intimidating message. But a third thing I see this morning is it's an indisputable message. I have to summarize for sake of time here, but many people believe that Jonah's infamy preceded him to the city of Nineveh. And they believe that because it took him so long to travel there that it was likely that word had spread about this 
prophet from this Hebrew uh, vagabond prophet who was wandering in the wilderness coming towards Nineveh that had been spit out by a whale. Uh, there's actually a, a, a story uh, from the 1800s of a man that was swallowed by a whale and was not in there very long, um, less than 24 hours, and he survived. And when he came out, his body was bleached white. All right? He didn't have any hair on his body. Now, that would be a spectacle to see. And I imagine Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, was no less of a spectacle, especially in that uh, culture of the world where there, aren't, there weren't white people probably during that point in time. All right, you got an albino walking in with no hair. All right, they probably thought he was a ghost when he walked into the city. And I'll say this to you, if you really think about it, uh, when, you, when you look at, at Jonah and what could have happened with him here, uh, when Jonah got to Nineveh, his appearance was just as, just as convincing as the message that he preached. I mean, all they had to do was look at him, and they were convinced of the message that they were listening to from him. In other words... His testimony confirmed his message. You just had to take one look at Jonah and realize God punishes sin, but God also pardons sinners. That's Jonah's story. And when Jonah preached the message, they were convinced if God did it for him, maybe he'll do it for us too. It was an indisputable message. They could not deny it. And you know, I'll just say this. You need to understand this, Christians here today. Your life is the only Bible that some people will ever read. I wonder if your life, the life that you are living is confirming the message uh, you are telling people about Jesus Christ. Something for us to think about is an indisputable message, but another thing I see here about this message is that it was an inescapable message. Listen to me. Once the people of Nineveh heard this message from God, there was no denying it. You couldn't go back and act like you never heard it. When they found out that they had 40 days and God's judgment was going to fall, they had to do something with it. Now, ignoring it could have been something they did. They could have not believed it. They could have rejected it. They could have done a whole lot of things. But the fact is, the Bible says that they were going to... Jonah's message from God was that the people of Nineveh were going to be overturned. If you study that Hebrew word for overturned, it actually is an interesting Hebrew word that could have two different meanings. It could mean to be overturned or to be turned over. And what God was essentially saying to the people of Nineveh is, you turn from your sin to me, or I'm going to turn you over, and you're going to be done. Turn or be turned. Can I say, now that you know the grim message of God's judgment for your sin, you only have two choices. Turn to Jesus Christ for salvation or be overturned in judgment for all of eternity. You say, that's not fair. Friend, that's more than what we deserve. What we deserve is judgment. God's given us a way of salvation. The choice is up to you. Friend, you'll not walk out of this place. You'll not go into eternity one day and say, well, I never knew. You do know. You've heard the word of God here today. What you do with it is a choice that you have to make. And every man has to make his own choice before God. It was a grim message that was required to bring about a spiritual revolution. It was a great need followed by a grim message. And a third truth I want you to see here today is there was a genuine response. A genuine response. 
The message of God from Jonah rang through the streets of Nineveh, leaving behind a, a sudden shock to the people that heard it. Can you imagine this prophet, bleached white skin, no hair, heralding through the city, repeating five words over and over and over again. I think we have the five words in Hebrew, actually, that, that Jonah actually recited. If you want to put those on the screen. If you read Hebrew, then you can probably understand what he said there. Don't you wish that uh, the preacher could preach with five words and the preaching would be done? Huh? He began to herald this message through the city. I don't think he just said it once. I think he kept saying it. He kept saying it, and he kept saying it. And Jonah only spoke five words in Hebrew. He didn't use flowery language or persuasive techniques. Listen to me. Just five words from God was enough. Five words from God was enough to bring a nation to its knees. Can I say the word of God is still powerful enough to do that today? It doesn't take us trying to water it down or butter it up. The Word of God is sufficient to bring change in the lives of people still today. What happened? What happened when Jonah preached the message that God told him to preach in Nineveh, verse 5? So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. After hearing God's word from God's prophet, we began to see there was a genuine response that began to take place among the people of Nineveh. I want us to think about this response for just a moment before we move on. I want you to see, first of all, that it was, a, it was a response of genuine faith. They genuinely believed what the Word of God had to say was coming to them. Verse number 5, the Bible again says, So the people of Nineveh, what's the next two words, church? Now, y'all got to help me out here today. All right? I can't preach alone, all right? Uh, the people of Nineveh, what did they do? They believed God. There was a response of genuine faith we see here. They believed what God's Word said. The people of Nineveh were convinced by the message that Jonah's God was the true God. They were convinced by the message that this God had the power and authority to judge them. And they believed from God's message that this God was going to judge them. And they were in desperate need of seeking this God for mercy and forgiveness of their sinful ways. And let me tell you something. Such sincere faith can only come from hearing God's word. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? In other words, they weren't believing in nothing. All right, well, I just believe because I, I, I just believe. A lot of people talk about belief like that today. They weren't believing in a church. They weren't believing in a religion. They were believing in God's word. That was the foundation. That's the foundation for true faith. This, this, this uh, 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 sincere faith came as a result of them hearing God's word and it resulted in just a simple response. They chose to trust it. They, they chose to, took it to, to take it to heart. In other words, they, they, they chose to stop believing what they were believing before, that they were okay and that, that they weren't under condemnation and now they chose to believe judgment is coming unless we turn to God and they turned their lives around as a result of their confidence in the message that they had heard from God. We see a genuine faith taking place here. And we know the faith of these people was genuine because it compelled these pagans. You think about it. Before, they knew nothing about Jehovah God. They didn't know who, they didn't know who Jonah's God was. 
But all of a sudden they hear a message from Jonah's God and they lay aside all their idols and all of their own gods and they say, you know what? That's a bunch of hogwash. Jonah's God is the real God. And we need to listen. We need to respond. We need to trust in that God. And I know their faith was genuine because they threw everything else aside and they cried out to the one true God. Look at verse number 8 with me if you would. The Bible says that they said in verse number 8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. That's Jehovah. That's Jonah's God. That's Elohim. The Bible tells us here that they, they put aside everything else and they cried out to the one true God. Listen. The fact of your sin that you've been confronted with today, it ought to compel you to cry out to the only one who can save you. And that's Jesus Christ. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. That is Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's it. I wonder if the reality of your sinfulness and your need of salvation would cause you to respond in genuine faith today and calling out to Jesus Christ to save your sinful soul. Oh, I hope it will. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The response was a response of genuine faith, but I see it was also a response of genuine fasting. Genuine fasting. Look back at your Bibles with me here if you would. We find that the response of the Assyrians here was not only spiritual, it was physical. It wasn't just something God did in their heart, but what God did in their heart impacted their hands, in other words. They were moved to action. Verse 5 again, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them, from the oldest to the youngest, from the most famous to the most forgotten, all the people in the city of Nineveh, at least 120,000 strong responded. They all believed God. They all responded in faith. And here's what happened next. Look at verse number 6. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and set in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the degree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. The people of Nineveh, heard God's message being proclaimed from Jonah, and they quickly began to spread it throughout the city. Word quickly spread all the way up to the highest throne in the land. Now, this wasn't the actual king of Assyria here. It was the king of Nineveh. He was the governor of Nineveh, and the governor of this city got word of what this preacher was proclaiming. And he didn't reject it. He didn't say, oh, that's just some crazy prophet out there yelling in the streets. He believed it because he believed it was God's word. And he believed it so much that he stepped off his throne. The Bible says he took ashes from a fire and he sat in ashes as a sign of his worthlessness. He took off his royal robes, the Bible says, and he put on sackcloth, burlap or something of the like, something very uncomfortable and something very humiliating for a man in royalty to put on and expose himself in front of the people. In other words, he humbled himself. And then the Bible says he started fasting. He wasn't going to eat he wasn't going to drink anything. He put aside his royal food, uh, the delicacies, and he started fasting and praying and saying, God, if you don't show up, if you don't forgive us, if you don't show us mercy, it doesn't matter anything else that happens. I'm desperate for you to do something, God. 
That's the measure that the king took. And then the king sent out emissaries throughout the kingdom who began to herald alongside Jonah and said, Hey, we need to turn to God. Listen, I want you to follow my example. I've humbled myself. I'm fasting. I'm seeking God for mercy. I'm seeking God to not send judgment upon us in 40 days. And I want all the people to follow my example. And the Bible says every one of them did. They began to sit in, they sit in ashes and put on sackcloth and began to fast from food and from drink. And we see a great revival sparking up and taking place in that city of Nineveh. I find it interesting that the king said, Let's not just have the people fast, but let's have the animals fast. Now, you have animals, you know how big of a deal that is. And I don't have time to go into it, but it was a part of the culture in that day when they would proclaim fasts that they would make the animals not do it either. And when the animals started to get hungry and even sick and start dying, they would start sacrificing their animals as further pleading uh, to, their, to their divinity uh, to, 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 to help them with whatever they may have been struggling with. And that's what was going on here. And boy, I, I, I think about it in the context of a parent, all right? I have toddlers. Have you ever tried to keep a toddler from eating? Okay? All right? It's bad, okay? There's no fun. But they begin to fast and seek the Lord. They showed the sincerity. Their hands reflected what their hearts had believed. There was a genuine fasting that took place here. I wonder, you know, as I've thought about this this week, what they determined is that they needed God's mercy more than they needed anything else. When was the last time you were so desperate for God, you put everything else aside? I don't care if I lose my job. I don't care if I eat. I don't care if I sleep. God, I need you to answer me more. When's the last time you fasted? You were so desperate for God to work in your life. Hey, when's the last time you were so desperate for America? That you fasted and prayed and asked God to work in this country? When's the last time you stayed up all night praying to God and asking God to save America, to work in this country, to spare this nation? That's the desperation that was happening for these people. Let me tell you something. We like to sit on our seats and complain about how bad everything is when the one person who can do something about it is sitting in heaven and is wondering why his people aren't standing in the gap aren't making up the hedges to God on behalf of the land. As Ezekiel chapter 31 says, they were desperate. There was a genuine faith, a genuine fasting, but I see a third thing here. There was a genuine fervency. We're running out of time, but I want you to see that these people, they weren't just putting on a show. They had humbled themselves. They'd starved themselves. They had discomforted themselves. And all this they had done because they were passionate. They were sincere in seeking the Lord. Verse number 8, again the Bible says, They said, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. That means shout out to God with violence. Shout out to God with force. They weren't just praying uh, their nonchalant prayers to the Lord that they pray every single day without thinking about it. They were desperate. They were crying out to God with force. They were crying out to God with, the, with every bit of passion that they had inside of them. God, if you don't do something, if you don't save us, we are going to be overturned. God, we're turning to you. God, we're putting away our sinfulness. God, we want you to work. They're crying out to God here. You ever cried out to God before? I mean, really? Not just prayed a thoughtless prayer. 
Your heart was so burdened about something, you cried out to God. That's where these people were. They were passionate. They were fervent and crying to the Lord here. The Bible goes on to say that they said, let us cry mightily unto God. Yea, let, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that was in their hands. You know, they weren't just fervent about praying out to God, crying out to God, but the Bible says they were also fervent and turning away from their sin. See, it was their sin that had put them in a place of judgment. And they weren't, just, they weren't just asking God to forgive them and then going right back to doing the same sinful things that they were doing before. No, this was true repentance. They said, God, we're serious. We're going to stop the things that we've been doing that have been displeasing you. We're desperate. We want you to give forgiveness. We want you to work in our city and spare us from judgment. And they began to turn from their sinful ways. They were so passionate in turning to the Lord here. Then the Bible says here at the end of verse number, uh, verse number 9, it says, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not these people? They didn't know what God's response was going to be. They didn't know what God was going to do. But they took all these measures. They started to cry with all of their hearts and turn from their sinfulness, put away the evil intentions of their hands, and they started to cry out to God for mercy and hope that God would show them mercy like He had showed Jonah mercy. Listen to this statement here. God wants you to get as serious about turning from your sin as He is about judging your sin. Because if you don't turn from your sin, you better believe God will keep up His end of the bargain. God would much rather you turn from your sin and receive the mercy that He wants to give to you today. Matthew Henry said, it's not enough to fast for your sin. You need to fast from your sin. It's time for you to acknowledge that what you're doing is not right before a holy God. And you need to get passionate about making it right. That's, that's the type of measure the Bible's talking about is required for a spiritual revolution to take place in your heart and your home and in this country. So long as we keep brushing sin under the rug and saying it's okay and saying that God doesn't care and, and talking about it in these types of ways, there will be no spiritual revolution. But God give us some Christians and God give us some people who will turn from their sins and turn to the Lord. And I'm telling you something, if you will, God will bring a spiritual revolution to your heart. You must be fervent in turning from your sin and turning to God. Joel chapter 2 and verse number 12. It says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And he says, And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repents him of the evil. Who knows if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? Can I tell you something? God is not fooled by your show. He is not fooled by your show. You come to church, you sing the songs, you put on the nice clothes, everybody else, you're a good Christian, you've got it all together, you know what's going on, and God sure knows what's going on. God said, I want you to rend your heart, not your garment. Don't come to me and say, well, God, I'm real sorry, and then go right back to it. No, he wants your heart. He doesn't want the outward show. It means nothing to him. God looks on the heart, not the outward appearance. 
God wants you to get fervent about turning to him, turning from your sin. That's what's required, a genuine response. When's the last time you genuinely responded to God? That's what he's looking for today. You want to know what's required for a spiritual revolution? A great need. A grim message, like we're hearing today, and a, and, and a genuine response. And in conclusion here this morning, I want you to see what will happen when those three things take place is that you will see God's generous mercy. God's generous mercy. After all the people of Assyria had done, they still deserve to be judged. Listen, your good works can't save you. They fasted, they put on sackcloth and ashes. They still didn't deserve to be saved. They still deserve to be judged. They didn't undo all the wrongs that they'd done. But what happened? They turned to God. And verse 10 says, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. In His mercy, God gave them time to repent. Forty days. And in His mercy, God showed them mercy when they repented. He didn't give them what they deserved. They repented, and God relented. That's important. You know that distinction there. They repented, and God relented. God's mercy allows for repentance still today. God's giving you an opportunity. Like God gave Jonah a second chance. Like God gave Nineveh a second chance. God's giving you a second chance today. God's mercy allows for repentance in your life today. And that mercy that God allows for is obtained through your repentance. If you don't repent from your sin and turn to God, you won't be able to understand His mercy here today. You will see, it, you will see the consequences for your sinful actions in your life. God is a just God as much as He is a merciful God. But if you turn to God today from your sin, listen, you can experience His mercy. Now, I don't have time to elaborate this fully here this morning, but we see two elements of God's mercy on display here, and the first of them is this. He is sovereign in His mercy. Let me summarize it by saying this. God was not surprised by the response of the people of Nineveh. In fact, from the very beginning, He had worked in the nation of Nineveh to bring a nation to its knees. It's about to collapse, and when it's about to collapse, He sends a prophet to the nation that says, you are, going to, you are going to be overturned. And when they heard that warning, they had to do something with it. Now, if I uh, say, uh, some of you have probably seen this before, if you have electric, electric fences around, sometimes you'll walk up to a fence and it has a warning sign on there, danger, warning, electric fence, do not touch, you will be shocked. Right? When I see a, a warning sign like that, there's two things about it that I need to understand. Number one, if I go ahead and touch it, I'm going to face judgment, <laughs> okay? But the sign's put there so that I can have mercy. Somebody's showing mercy on me and telling me, don't touch that fence, it's going to hurt you. All right, now all of us as kids, we figured out you could touch your buddy and then touch the fence, and it's lots of fun doing that, okay? <laughs> but listen, God gave a word of warning here. The word of warning was not given primarily to condemn the people but to give the people an opportunity to obtain mercy. God's saying, warning, there's an electric fence, judgment's coming. The people 
could choose to ignore it and go ahead and face the judgment, or they could choose to listen to it and believe it and obtain mercy. And that's what they chose to do here. The fact is, God is sovereign in how he shows this mercy. God, when the Bible says that God repented here, it's not talking about that God changed his mind. God already knew what, God was, what he was going to do from the beginning. All right? Um, God knew how he was going to work in the hearts of these people to bring them to this, to this response. And it was no surprise to God when the message was given and the people of Nineveh repented. Can I say it's no surprise to God that you're sitting in here today, that he's working in your heart. It'll be no surprise to God when you call out to him and obtain his mercy. He's sovereign in that. He already knows he wants to give you mercy. That's why he put you in this place today to hear this message so that you could be a recipient of his mercy here today. He's sovereign in his mercy, but I also see that he's sympathetic in his mercy. And boy, there's, there's so much we could say about this, but look at verse 10 and we'll be done. The Bible says, And God saw their works, that they, return, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. God did not give the people of Nineveh what they deserved. They deserved judgment, but God gave them mercy. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. He has not rewarded us after our sins, nor given us what we deserve for our transgressions. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, like a father pities his children, so the Lord pities us. God is a sympathetic God. He knows that we're made of sinful stuff. And that's why he who is rich in mercy is so good about giving us that mercy when we turn to him. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. If you turn to God today, he has enough mercy to help you. He has enough mercy to save you. And I wonder if you'll do it here today. What does it take? What is needed for a spiritual revolution to take place? A great need. A great need that demands a grim message. A grim message that brings about a genuine response. A genuine response that provokes God's generous mercy. God wants to give you mercy today. You might have had your heart pricked by conviction today. There's a reason for that. You don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Today is the day for you to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And Christian, you know Jesus as your Savior. You're walking in sin. Today would be a good day for you to turn from it and experience a spiritual revolution in your heart. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes to